MSW Media. Crooked Media's Hysteria is a weekly podcast hosted by political commentator and comedy writer Aaron Ryan and former Obama White House Deputy Chief of Staff Alyssa Mastromonaco. They are joined by a squad of funny, opinionated women, my favorite, and they cover everything from reproductive rights to rom-coms, breaking down the political news of the week. Listen to Hysteria every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, April 29th, 2022. Today, the chair of the 1-6 committee says hearings will begin June 9th. An expose on a $700 million pandemic loan made to a Trump-backed company. Kellyanne Conway knew of a Nebraska candidate's sexual misconduct months ago. A man in Florida tries to get the Bible banned under a new book banning law. New video and Venmo payments from Madison Cawthorn and a male assistant have been leaked as the GOP civil war rages on. Biden signals he will cancel some student debt. Some breaking Paul Manafort news and a Daily Beans exclusive on new testimony to the Manhattan District Attorney. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everyone. Happy Friday. It's Friday, and that means we're having our bi-weekly happy hour for patrons on Zoom tonight, but it's been moved from 4 p.m. Pacific to 5 p.m. Pacific. I just wanted to make sure everybody makes a note of that. I will be jumping on at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 Eastern. Dana will be back with us next week, and. I have some right now breaking news about Paul Manafort. Let me read this to you from Josh Gerstein at Politico. The Justice Department is suing Paul Manafort for almost $3 million in penalties related to his alleged failure to file reports disclosing more than 20 bank accounts he controlled in foreign countries, including Cyprus, the UK and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. According to the civil suit filed in federal court in West Palm Beach, Florida Thursday, The Treasury Department assessed the penalties against the longtime lobbyist and political consultant in July 2020, exactly five months before President Trump pardoned his former advisor on criminal tax, bank fraud, conspiracy and obstruction of justice. And that case was pursued by special counsel Mueller, whose probe of alleged Russian interference into Trump's 2016 campaign was the focus of intense and bitter criticisms from Trump. An attorney for Manafort expressed disappointment in the Justice Department's decision to file the case, which was brought near Manafort's legal residence in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Today's civil lawsuit, quote, seeks a money judgment against Mr. Manafort for simply failing to file a tax form. That's Jeffrey Neiman, a lawyer, in a statement. Mr. Manafort was aware the government was going to file the suit because he had tried for months to resolve this civil matter. Nonetheless, the government insisted on filing the suit simply to embarrass Mr. Manafort. The Justice Department declined to comment. Manafort told Politico earlier this month he was planning to head back to work soon, doing what he called general business consulting. During a 2018 jury in Alexandria, Virginia, on some of the various criminal charges, Manafort was found guilty of failing to file a foreign bank account report for 2012, but the jury failed to reach a verdict on the same charge for 2013 and 2014. Jurors split 11 to 1 in favor of convicting Manafort on those counts, according to the verdict sheet and juror interviews. The Justice Department's suit signals that federal attorneys have concluded that Trump's pardon does not cover the 2013 and 2014 charges, as well as the other eight counts 
the jury failed to reach a unanimous verdict on. But they haven't prosecuted him on that. And that might be a statute of limitations thing. On the same day Trump left office in January 2021, a former Mueller deputy, Andrew Weissman, published a legal commentary on just security, arguing that Trump's pardon of Manafort was poorly worded and failed to cover the charges he was never convicted on in Virginia. Noting that Manafort was sent home from his seven-and-a-half-year prison sentence after serving just two years, Weissman argued that the punishment of Manafort was so modest that the Justice Department should reconsider prosecuting him on the 10 mistried charges in Virginia, as well as other charges dismissed after he agreed to a plea deal with Mueller's team to avoid a second trial in Washington. Quote, reimposing appropriate punishment, one imposed by two courts, is thus not only fair in the system wedded to any rule of law, but may increase the chance of finally learning the truth, Weissman wrote, indicating he believed Manafort knew more than he'd previously acknowledged about Trump's connections to Russia. Weissman noted that Manafort admitted to all the charges against him as part of a plea deal and also agreed to waive any applicable statutes of limitations. So that answers the statute of limitations part. Weissman declined to comment on the lawsuit filed on Thursday. Justice Department lawyers seemed to take a broader view of the Trump pardon than Weissman, About a month later, government attorneys cited the pardon as they told a federal judge they were dropping efforts to complete forfeitures of three properties owned by Manafort, including his Long Island estate. The department has determined that due to Trump's full and unconditional pardon of Manafort, it is necessary to dismiss the criminal forfeiture proceedings involving the four assets which were subject of the ongoing forfeiture ancillary proceedings. That's the Justice Department a while ago. The decision cleared the way for a Chicago bank that gave Manafort loans backed by properties to foreclose and resell them. The bank said late last year it expected to turn a multi-million dollar profit on the Manafort loans after selling the collateral. Although the DOJ could have tried to prosecute Manafort over the allegedly unfiled financial disclosures, the new court filing may signal that the department attorneys concluded that a civil lawsuit was more appropriate to further penalize the former Trump campaign official than initiating a new criminal prosecution. That could be a signal. The new suit says Manafort failed to comply with a requirement to report all foreign accounts under one's control if the total balance exceeded $10,000. While the suit contends that Manafort failed to report 22 foreign accounts in 2013, the complaint acknowledges that 19 of those accounts had a zero balance by the middle of the following year. Two of the accounts had a balance of less than $200,000 at the time, while one had a balance of about $443,000. All of the accounts were in the names of offshore companies Manafort controlled or had signature authority over with the banks involved, according to the complaint. And during the criminal cases several years ago, prosecutors alleged that Manafort used those accounts to park funds he earned from his political consulting work in Ukraine, but transferred some of the money to pay his bills in the U.S. for real estate, landscaping, and expensive custom clothing. He also failed to pay taxes on much of the money that remained overseas or the sums that he used to pay debts here. And that's what he got convicted for. So that's a little breaking Manafort news for you. I'll go over it a little bit more on the weekend on Sunday in Mueller, she wrote. And now that that's breaking news is out of the way, let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Today, the House committee investigating one six will hold hearings in primetime beginning June 9th. There will be eight hearings. Some will be primetime, some during the day. And the committee aims to feature key witnesses and evidence to give the public an in-depth look at the deadly attack and what the committee found. And that's according to the chair of that committee, Benny Thompson. So mark your calendars, June 9th. Thompson also noted that the committee plans to invite some GOP senators to testify before the panel, branching out from the small group of House Republicans that they have already invited to speak. Though he didn't name any names, the panel has been interested in the efforts of 
Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, for example, Mike Lee, etc., and Tommy Tuberville. So we'll see what happens there. Thompson said the senators would be invited as part of an expanded list of invitations to Republican lawmakers that also includes broader outreach to House Republicans. Quote, we will ask more than three people who are members, he said. Also, new video of scandal-ridden GOP rep Madison Cawthorn having his crotch felt by a close male friend and staff member is now at the center of a complaint calling for an investigation into him and filed with the Office of Congressional Ethics today. This is according to the Daily Mail, just so you know. The extraordinary footage obtained by Daily Mail and seen here for the first time shows Cawthorn, 26, in a car with his close aide and his scheduler, who I'm not going to name. Cawthorn sits in the driver's seat, filmed by Smith, as he adopts an exaggerated accent and says, I feel the passion and desire and would like to see a naked body beneath my hands. The camera then pans back to Smith, who says, me too, as Cawthorn can be heard laughing. Smith then films himself reaching his hand over and into Cawthorn's crotch. Now, I want to make clear, this is from the Daily Mail. And whether or not it's real, which we haven't been able to confirm, it's got a real Hunter Biden's laptop feel to it. It's not as relevant, whether or not it's real, as the fact that Republicans are clearly going after Cawthorn. This is the Daily Mail. This isn't the left wing going after him. And that's significant. Also, of the utmost importance, there's absolutely nothing wrong with anything the right is accusing Cawthorn of doing. The left, we accuse him of being a seditionist and doing a coup. But the right is going after him for his, what I consider, totally acceptable behavior. And that's fascinating. Is it because he revealed their coke orgy secret? Because some people are like, oh, there must be coke orgies. We've heard about them. We know that at least Matt Gates has participated in some of them. The Republicans are in disarray, my friends. Next up, Democratic lawmakers on Wednesday released a report alleging that a top Trump administration official had awarded a $700 million pandemic relief loan to a struggling trucking company in 2020 over the objections of career officials at the Department of Defense. The report, released by the Democratic staff of the House Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus, describes the role of corporate lobbyists during the early months of the pandemic in helping to secure government funds as trillions of dollars of relief money were being pumped into the economy. It also suggests that senior officials such as Steve, Stephen Mnuchin, the former Treasury Secretary, and Mark T. Esper, the former Defense Secretary, intervened to ensure that the trucking company, Yellow Corporation, received special treatment despite concerns about its eligibility to actually get the money. Quote, today's select subcommittee staff report reveals yet another example of the Trump administration disregarding their obligation to be responsible stewards of taxpayer dollars. That is James Clyburn of South Carolina, the Democratic chairman, by the way, of the subcommittee. Quote, political appointees risked hundreds of millions of dollars in public funds against the recommendations of career DOD officials and in clear disregard of provisions of the CARES Act intended to protect national security and the American taxpayers. The $2.2 trillion pandemic relief package that Congress passed in 2020 included $17 billion for money set up by Congress and controlled by the Treasury Department to assist companies that were considered critical to national security. In July 2020, the Treasury Department announced it was giving $700 million of those dollars to the trucking company YRC Worldwide, which is now Yellow, Yellow Trucking. Lobbyists for Yellow had been in close touch with White House officials throughout the loan process and had discussed how the company employs Teamsters as its drivers, according to the report. Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff, was a, quote, key actor in coordinating with Yellow's lobbyists, according to correspondence that the committee obtained. The report also noted 
that the White House's political operation was almost giddy in its efforts to assist with this application. The loan raised immediate questions from watchdog groups because of the company's close ties to the Trump administration and because it had faced years of financial and legal turmoil. The firm had lost more than $100 million in 2019 and was being sued by the Justice Department over claims that it had defrauded the federal government for seven years. It recently agreed to pay $6.85 million to resolve those allegations and the allegations that they knowingly presented false claims to the Department of Defense by systematically overcharging it for freight carrier services and making false statements to hide their misconduct. That's bad. To qualify for a national security loan, the company needed certification by the Department of Defense. And according to this report, defense officials had recommended against certification because of the accusations the company had defrauded the government. They also noted that the work the company had been doing for the federal government, which included shipping meal kits, protective equipment, and other supplies to military bases, could be replaced by a bunch of different other trucking firms. But the day after the defense official notified a treasury official that the company would not be certified, one of Steve's aides set up a telephone call between him and Esper over at the old DOD. The report indicated that Esper was not initially familiar with the status of their certification. Before the call, aides prepared a summary of the analysis and recommendation of the department's career officials that concluded the certification should be rejected. And before they reached Mr. Esper, Ellen M. Lord, the department's undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment, who was appointed by Trump, intervened and requested a new set of talking points that argued that the company should receive the financial support, quote, to both support force readiness and national economic security. She could not be reached for comment. After the call with Mnuchin, Esper certified the company was critical to national security, and a week later, the approval of the loan was announced. Mnuchin then sent an email to Meadows that included news reports praising the loan. He highlighted positive comments from James Huffa, the longtime president of the Teamsters Union, who, according to the documents in the report, made a direct plea to President Trump about the loan. A former Treasury official familiar with the process said the loan saved 25,000 union jobs during an economic crisis and prevented disruption to the national supply chain that the DOD, businesses and consumers, had depended on. The former official said that because of the terms of the loan, taxpayers were profiting from the agreement. A spokesman for Esper said the company met the criteria to be eligible for the loan, even though they had defrauded the government for seven years. They totally met the criteria and emphasized that the report made clear that the senior staff at the Defense Department recommended that he certify it. The Treasury Department made the final decision to issue the loan. Interesting. And over to the Manhattan DA. And I want to make clear what I'm about to tell you is rumint or rumors intelligence. I have a fairly well-placed source that has said the Manhattan DA has interviewed former employees of the insurance giant Zurich before the grand jury in the past week which, if true, could indicate Alvin Bragg is actually continuing to gather evidence in the criminal investigation of the Trump organization. This information comes to me on the heels of the revelation that Donald testified in another case that he and he alone was in charge of Trump org executive compensation, particularly with Calamari Sr., who Maddow calls squids, which just kills me. And that's something that the Trump org in Weisselberg had been indicted for last July. All right, moving on. It was Florida's move to reject 54 math textbooks for prohibited subjects that made up Chaz Stevens's mind. It was time to go after the Bible. Stevens, a 57-year-old tech wizard with a history of pulling wacky political stunts, had already been tracking the progress of a new state law that makes it easier for parents and county residents to challenge books in schools. 
The provision, which comes amid an unprecedented nationwide spike in challenges to books, particularly those by and about LGBTQ plus and black people, was signed by Governor DeSantis in late March. It takes effect July 1st. But Stevens decided he couldn't wait a moment longer. As of Wednesday, he has filed a near identical petition with 63 Florida schools asking school districts asking to ban the Bible. He has also filed a second petition with one district, Broward County Public Schools, requesting the removal of the Oxford English Dictionary. His three-page petition critiques the Bible for its depictions of bestiality and cannibalism, its, quote, eye-popping passages of babies being smashed against the rocks in Psalms 137, and its, quote, strong pro-slavery position, citing Ephesians 6, 5-7. As the Bible casually references such topics as murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and fornication, or as I like to think, date night, Friday night, do we really want to teach our youth about drunken orgies? That's what the petition asks. Stephen's subsequent complaints against the dictionary calls it a weighty tome over a thousand years old containing more than 600,000 words, all very troubling if we're trying to keep our youth from learning about race, gender, sex, and such. Although Stephen's petitions are tongue-in-cheek, legal experts said his actions highlight flaws and constitutional concerns surrounding Florida's new law and others like it, and could lead to serious litigation down the line. Kind of reminds me of the old flying spaghetti monster. May you be touched by his noodly appendage. Also in the news, former Trump administration White House advisor Kellyanne Conway said she heard last year about some kind of sexual allegations against GOP Nebraska gubernatorial candidate Charles Herbster, but she's working to get him elected anyway. Conway alleged on Steve Bannon's War Room podcast that groping allegations raised by eight women, including Republican state senator, were somehow cooked up by the current Republican governor, Pete Ricketts, who does not support Herbster, a corporate CEO who has never held office. Ricketts, quote, got in my face 10 months ago vowing to destroy Charles Herbster, said Kellyanne Conway. She offered nothing else in the way of proof that Ricketts is behind the assault or the assault accusations. A key accuser is GOP state Senator Julia Slama. She said in an emotional radio interview earlier this month that she was in shock at what she called an assault by Herbster at a Republican dinner in 2019. Content warning here. She says, as I was walking to my table, I felt a hand reach up my skirt, up my dress, and the hand was Charles Herbster's. That's what she said in a shaky voice in an interview on news radio KFAB in Omaha. Quote, I was in shock. I was mortified. It was one of the most traumatizing things I've ever been through. Slama added, I watched as as five minutes later, he grabbed the buttocks of another young woman. This was witnessed by several people at the event. Slama talked of the intimidating, huge power differential, making it difficult to speak out against one of the biggest donors in Nebraska in the Nebraska Republican Party. Herbster has denied the accusations as libelous fake news and last week announced he had sued Slama for slander. Say that five times fast. As of Friday, Slama had not been served with a lawsuit, her legal team said in a statement. To be sure, any claim that calls into question Senator Slama's well-corroborated account of her sexual assault by Charles Herbster would be categorically without merit and frivolous, the statement added. Conway also attacked Slama's credibility on War Room, pointing out she accepted a $10,000 campaign donation after the incident and invited Herbster to her wedding. Herbster says he has highlighted the exact same points in his lawsuit as proof that he did not grope Slama. Bannon found it hilarious, but such behavior is not usual for victims attempting to placate an attacker and avoid further incidents of retaliation. She says, I was scared. I felt obligated to meet with my attacker, Charles Herbster, because he's my constituent, a Republican mega donor, and a leading candidate for Nebraska governor. I was terrified that in addition to sexually assaulting me, it would ruin my public reputation, which is exactly what he's trying to do now, she said. Herbster, 
owner and CEO of Conklin Company and sometimes beauty pageant judge, has been a front runner in the race for Nebraska governor. Herbster reportedly gave $1.3 million to Trump's campaigns and attended the 1-6 rally outside the Capitol with members of Trump's inner circle. Trump has endorsed him. And President Biden gave his strongest indication yet in a private meeting with House Democrats that he's poised to take significant action to relieve student loan debt, a move that could include canceling tens of thousands of dollars in debt for some people. Borrowers are currently benefiting from a moratorium on paying off their loans that lasts through August 31st. The White House has come under some pressure from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party to cancel the liabilities outright rather than repeatedly extending the moratorium. We learned today, he said in public, that he will likely not cancel the full $50,000, but has indicated it will be means tested so that millionaires don't get the same relief as the rest of us. It's of note that Biden and Warren put a provision in last year's American Rescue Plan that forgives taxes on student loan forgiveness up to $50,000 per person, and that provision does not expire until 2025. So as long as Biden cancels student debt before 2025, all forgiveness under $50,000 would be tax-free. He has also said that he will make an announcement on his decision in the coming weeks. All right, we'll be right back after this very quick message with the good news. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG with The Daily Beans. Thanks for listening to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by our latest sponsor, The Hysteria Podcast. Crooked Media's Hysteria is a weekly podcast hosted by a political commentator and comedy writer, Aaron Ryan, and the former Obama White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Alyssa Mastromonaco. Their bi-coastal team of funny, opinionated women covers everything from reproductive rights to rom-coms, breaking down the political news of the week, as well as trends and cultural stories that affect women. Check out their latest episode. Aaron Ryan talks with labor journalist and author Kim Kelly about her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold Story of American Labor. Plus, Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow joins to discuss her viral speech on the Senate floor, and the Republicans' growing trend of labeling their Democratic opponents as groomers and pedophiles. Plus, Amy Westervelt and Mary Anise Hagler, host of the podcast Hot Take, join in to talk about Earth Day and sustainability burnout. I highly recommend checking out Hysteria. If you enjoy The Daily Beans, you're looking for another fun, informative podcast with great guests that keeps you entertained. New episodes of Hysteria drop every Thursday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hey, I'm Ben Micellis. I'm Brett Micellis. And I'm Jordy. And we are the hosts of the Midas Touch podcast, the top rated, top watched political podcast for pro-democracy content. Each week we do multiple episodes where we break down the political issues of the day here in the United States and abroad as we fight for democracy. Isn't that right, Brett? That's right, Ben. We've had conversations with some incredible guests like White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Beto O'Rourke, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, Glenn Kirshner, Mary Trump, celebrities like Deborah Messing, Alyssa Milano, Michael Rappaport, and more. So subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's the Midas Touch, M-E-I-T-A-S-T-O-U-C-H podcast. Jordy, anything to add? Shout out to the Midas Mighty. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news is on the way. And if you have anything you want to send us, good news, confessions, corrections, or otherwise, maybe just some pod pet picks. What the Mutt, Find the Cat, Whoopi Stories, what you're creating and building, any small businesses you have that you want to know people to know about, you can send it into us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. 
And it would really help us out if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a review, give us a rating, because for some reason they all got wiped out and we have to build them all up from the beginning again. All right. First up from anonymous pronouns, he and him. Our dog Kira is a rescue. Our neighbor calls her a supermodel with attitude, although to be fair, I presume all supermodels have attitude. We think she's slightly offended if a stranger remarks that she's merely pretty and not beautiful. (laughs) Anyway, we had a cancerous growth removed recently. It's an aggressive cancer, but appears to not have spread. So that's pretty great news. Can you guess her breed? Oh, oh, it looks like a husky lab shepherd mix. Oh, what a beautiful baby. Oh, look at all these pictures. Oh, and then the Christmas, Christmas dog. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, Let's see. She's Malamute, Husky, Wolf, and German Shepherd. All right. So I missed the Malamute and the Wolf. Holy moly. She's beautiful. I I wonder if she howls. Is she like Malamutes or does she do the Husky thing? Because it's just kind of a difference. Next up from Allison, pronoun she and her controversial confession. Hey, Beans Queens, I have a silly confession to make. I'm an avid Patreon listener because I am an advertisement-hating millennial. However, I have missed the after these messages will be right back jingle that would play before the first ad break on the Daily Beans. It felt like a quirky nod to be warned of ads only for AG to immediately return with more news or an interview. I like to sing along with the little clips that are spliced throughout the show and miss getting to belt that little ditty out before whistling. I love all y'all so much and I'm thankful for all you do. Can I, if can I, if you're listening, can we please put the jingle back in before the ad? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, Allison. I love that. I love that jingle too. That comes from Saturday morning cartoons in the early 80s. All right, Matt pronouns he and him. Good morning. I got my birthday wish from last week and had Thor here to celebrate. Sunday's back gave out and a lot of problems came. My wife and I cuddled him all night. He passed away in my arms yesterday morning, holding him so tight. He's not in pain anymore. Please join me in this celebration of life. Thor, December 24th, 2006 to April 25th, 2022. Thor, rest in peace. Look at this baby. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, honey. This is hard. That's one of the hardest things. Matt, I'm sending you all my love and hugs. Thank you for sending this in. Next up, from Jim from Albuquerque. Pronouns he and him. Good news, I think. And a suggestion for another game. The good news, after decades away from it, I'm getting back into composing and recording music using my PC, sequencer software, and some synthesizers I picked up used on eBay. I need to learn to read music again, and I can't play an instrument. Too much mileage in the form of arthritis, injuries, and orthopedic surgery on both hands and both feet, but I wouldn't use them to play. But I can hunt and peck pieces and melodies on the synth and drum machine and capture them on the PC and then take it from there with the software. It's fun. Anyway, it gives me an excuse to build a more high-powered PC, which is also fun. Yes, it is. The game What the Fuck Tattoos. (laughs) Here's one that still makes me giggle. In January of 1978, my unit was in Japan, cold weather training. We'd head out to the field before dawn on Mondays get back to the base on Friday afternoons, and we'd have the weekends off. Most of us would jump on the train and head for one of the cities. Somebody found a tattoo artist in Yokosuka. Most of the pictures in the studio were Yakuza tattoos. A lot of us went and got him to do pieces for us. He was an old guy who said we were his first Americans since the Korean War. Turned into a Sunday evening ritual. 
Once everyone was back, we'd check out each other's new ink. I got my first two tattoos there. I'm up to a couple of dozen. Now, this is about a couple other guys in my platoon. One was an upstate New York farm boy and a real bigot. He was in the anti-tank assault section with a genuine East L.A. gangbanger. They despised each other. This weekend, our farmer picked a dramatic design, an eagle clutching a snake in its claws, cue foreshadowing music. That night at show and tell, when he proudly rolled up his sleeve, our Angelino started laughing. New York stuck out his chest and said, what are you laughing at? L.A. said, just a minute, I need to show you something. And he dug into his sea bag, still laughing, and found what he was looking for and unfurled it with a flourish. You, my friend, have a Mexican flag on your arm for life. <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks again for all you do to keep us informed and encouraged. Semper Fi and keep doing the Lord's work. Hoo-ah. Oh, my God. That is... Uh. <laughs> That's wonderful. Wonderful. So this was a tradition. You would just go get tattoos. That's amazing. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. That's a fun game. If you have a what the fuck tattoo, feel free to send it in. Or a look how awesome is my tattoo. We can do some tattoo photos. I would appreciate that. And Matt, again, giant hugs. Giant hug for you and your wife. And love to Thor. Thank you, everyone, so much for all of these submissions. We will be back in your ears Monday morning, of course, tonight at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern. We will have our Zoom happy hour for patrons. If you're not a patron, you can become one for 36 bucks for the whole year. Add free feeds of this, Muller She Wrote, and the MSW Book Club. You can do it at patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote, and you'll get to join the Zoom calls and ask me questions while we have cocktails or drink water or do, you know, whatever we feel like doing. And uh, I guess that's it. Like I said, Dana and I will be back Monday morning. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media.